Hello and welcome to the Health Hour on uh, Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and streaming to CHD TV. We are so glad that you are with us today. Um, you're going to love today's show because it's sort of like listener demanded. A lot of people love Javier Figueroa, but he rarely gets a word in edgewise. So he's getting the whole hour today to really bring his expertise. Um, before I do my other little nonsense, I'm going to go ahead and bring Javier on here. Hey. <laughs> hey, Bernadette. How you doing? Uh, doing very, very well. You know, um, I don't know if you, you realize that so many people who follow this show, um, you know, they ask about you and they're like, is Javier going to be on this week? And, you know, just you're like that. What is it? EF Hutton commercials. It's like, you don't say much when you say something, people lean forward and they're listening. <laughs> like, what's he got to say? Well, that's very uh, kind. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we're just so glad you could be here. And um, so let me get my our information out of the way here. So this hour of free speech radio is sponsored by the Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense. Uh, please pop on over to wa.childrenshealthdefense.org. Sign up to get the newsletter. If you can give a little something every month to keep free speech on their airwaves, please look for the donate tab and do what you can to to um, keep medical free speech alive and well in Washington state. Um, and indeed, of course, around the world because it streams to CHD TV and this show is watched around the world. It's, I'm really proud Javier of the people in this whole medical freedom movement who have refused to be intimidated into silence. In fact, we've been rejuvenated by the nonsense that the powers that shouldn't be have been doing. Um, so the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of our wonderful hosts. Um, and we're not giving medical advice. So we're just so pleased to have a full hour, this first health hour, all about the brain. And we've got with us Dr. Javier Figueroa, who is um, a PhD He's got a PhD in neurobiology uh, from University of Washington. So I guess that university isn't all bad. They do <laughs> do some good things. The majority of it is likely good. But, you know, like anything else, Javier, the infrastructure has been captured, I would say, by industry. Correct. It doesn't always put the purity of knowledge ahead of the profit of outcomes so absolutely and i mean i've heard one uh, per, uh several uh commentators and people that actually look at uh, uh universities and they call the university of washington bill gates university uh, mm -hmm. and that uh, the the bill and melinda gates foundation donate a lot of money to the university of washington and that they help to establish the ihcm i'm trying to remember the acronym but they help to fund and establish a uh, a group at the university of washington that did all the modeling associated yes. with the COVID-19 response. So yes. they, you know, that's, that's what I called um, uh, academic uh, astroturfing in that you install mm -hmm. uh, groups that will be uh, 
um, you know, that'll have the patina or at least the veneer of being associated and being part of an academic institution that has clout, but is uh, obedient or at least aligned with the uh, narrative of uh, whoever's paying the bill. Exactly. And there we have the dangers of the public-private partnership, the the huge tangle that happens. And nothing gets more tangled than a university that's got some public funding, some private funding, you know, a whole lot going in there. And this is where supposed knowledge happens, where new information happens and what they decide to teach the new generation of individuals in the medical system. Um, and it, it's it's very concerning. And so yes. the separation of pharma and state has got to happen. It's going to a huge mess to detangle. Absolutely. Yeah. And as you know, uh, Children's Health Defense has an initiative called Reform Pharma. And um, on their 10 point plan, uh, separating pharma and state is is one of those main missions um you know it's like so many other things things are begun thinking oh this is a good thing we can help each other everybody has the best of intentions uh but you know yeah so the brain javier um a couple of things i'm gonna start by asking you what got you interested in studying the brain as a career path? And then we're going to um, begin by looking at where the brain of a human being begins, you know, how the developmental stages. So first, what made a young man go to university and decide he wanted to study the brain? <laughs> um, yeah, that, I'm trying to think back of what was the actual... Um impetus that, 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 that drove me to go into the neurosciences. One, there was a, in the 1990s, there was a big push uh, uh, by the Bush administration uh, to, and they had an initiative called the initiative, the decade of the brain. So there was a lot of funding associated with uh, looking at neuroscience uh, and just developing it to the maximum, creating a, um, a cadre of uh, young researchers, young PhDs uh, to go, to get into that, to, to that area. So mm-hmm. that shift spurred and released a lot of money into it. Uh, the other one was my interest in, um, uh, Alzheimer's disease. Um, what was interesting for me was how is it that a person, you know, that you have all these memories, you, you have a personality and you've developed it and you have it with you, uh, as part of your growth process. And all of a sudden there's a disease that just slowly starts taking it away from you mm-hmm. bit by bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what led me into that area. Um, I was fortunate enough that after graduation, uh, the job market was so poor, uh, that, uh, I really could not find any work and the biotechnology field was so nascent, or at least was, uh, not as developed as it is now that finding a work as a, as a, uh, college graduate with a bachelor's degree in microbiology, uh, made me realize that if I want to stay in the sciences and do research, I need to get serious about really getting into uh, a field and carving out a niche. Uh, fortunately, I was able to work as a, a laboratory manager uh, at the UCSF Fresno Extension over at the Veterans Administration uh, with uh, the uh, director of neurology at the time, who was uh, Fen Lee Chang. Uh, he was an MD, PhD, and he was tapped to be the director for the neurology uh, department for the VA. And so he was responsible for establishing and creating the Central Valley Alzheimer's Brain Bank. 
So I was involved in um, taking uh, recording information on uh, volunteers that enrolled. And then um, the unfortunate part is when they passed away, I was part of the team that would go in and uh, harvest the brain. So when you say brain bank, you literally mean a, a, brain bank. a bank of brains yeah. for researchers to study. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that was, uh, you know, there were, there were times when I would go into morgues and uh, mortician's offices and help the uh, uh, pathology technicians uh, retrieve the brains. And I talk about getting firsthand experience doing that. Um, and some of the people that, that uh, we harvested the brains from, I knew in, in life. So it was uh, seeing it from both sides. That must have been very surreal to... Yes. It, it almost seems like there would be a sort of, is, is there a sort of respectful ritual that's sort of carried out, even if it's just silently before you begin to, you know? More more of the acknowledgement that someone has passed away. Uh, there was a, and you know, one of the things that uh, the uh, pathology technician who worked there um, informed me, you know, he says, you know, we, we, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, this, is, this has been a donation, it is a magnificent donation that the person in the family have made, we have to retreat the, the remains of that person with respect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were so many techniques that we used to ensure that um, when we were done collecting the brain, that there was, uh, the, the, the family wouldn't see uh, any stitches or any cuts or anything like that. So mm -hmm. there was a whole process and procedure for doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, making sure that we we, we honored the uh, uh, that particular donation uh, and minimized any any uh, emotional um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I guess trauma, really trauma, you know, for the family for for any of the procedures that we did. Mm -hmm. So you know, um, for me, doing science definitely had a direct uh, direct connection with uh, how humans and people are affected. That these uh, science is not this vague. Um, path, but it's it's a very direct path that affects the lives of people. So mm -hmm. that's well, that was my first introduction to to that. I worked uh, in that as as that lab manager for two years before uh, moving uh, into the uh, program at the University of Washington mm -hmm. uh, in 1997. So uh, moved up to to, to Seattle and. Uh, um, started diving straight into uh, all the classes and uh, all the research that we were doing there. Mm -hmm. And um, most of my work was molecular uh, neurobiology. So I didn't do a lot of work in terms of what I did before, which was at a, at a clinical level. Okay. Um, so that was, that was my introduction. I, I, I went from the top all the way to the bottom and then I've been going back and forth ever since in terms of trying to understand, uh, you know, the role of the brain and the body and uh, how molecular systems in the brain and in the neurons and in the, and the astrocytes and microglia work together. Mm -hmm. But it's, I mean, you know, we, we have more than 100 years of trying to understand the brain um, electrophysiologically, chemically, biochemically, molecular biology, the molecular biology, the neuroanatomy the genetics. Uh, it's incredible how much information there, there is right there. But um, another driving, um, another driving transition for me was uh, the role of consciousness 
you know, what is some, something that we define consciousness is, is a very vague term, but uh, most people understand that, you know, there is an I present um, inside each of us when we, you know, when, when we have our, our daily conversations. And at the time, I was very much in line with uh, most of my scientific colleagues in thinking that uh, consciousness was what, what is called an epiphenomena. That is, it is local to a process here in the physical brain. Consciousness was this manufactured self of I for whatever reason that evolution selected for it. Okay. You never heard anything other than that. And so once you actually start stepping outside of it, and I, you know, was a diehard atheist at the time, mm-hmm. um, but at the time, uh, you start listening. You start what, the one thing. The one great thing about the scientific debate is you have the hardcore materialist atheists, and then you have also the other spectrum, which is the non. You have materialists, non-atheists that also have a different point of view in terms of what is consciousness, and basically that it is a, a phenomena that is widespread. Uh, that everything in the universe has some form of consciousness, including atoms and electrons. And that consciousness is inherent fact and, and capacity of matter. But at the same time, you know, there's also the contention of what is the soul, what is all the other uh, religious uh, and philosophical association with it. So that's what really um, drove me into going into the neurosciences, uh, you know, trying to unravel what that was. And then, you know, just through getting beaten over the head enough times <laughs> to realize that this is a much wider debate and you really have to take everything into consideration. And that's the importance of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. That, that's the one thing I can say is that my neurobiology degree is great. My biggest uh, lesson that I learned was the proper uh, application, use, and development of the scientific method. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. This journey that you've been on and you said you were a diehard atheist, and yes. there's been this evolution, if I can use that term for where we're headed, Absolutely. Uh, of your beliefs. So yeah. do you want to touch on that just a little bit? Briefly. I mean, it's one of those, it, for each person, there's a moment where, where you realize, well, you know, okay, uh, there's, there is an impasse that you reach, and uh, you, you, you have to make the choice of whether you want to believe or not believe. Uh, and again, most people have that conversion, uh, you know, uh, and I've heard this many times from many other people of uh, discovering or entering into um, uh, discovering uh, Christ as your uh, as your uh, savior. Uh, for me, it was not so much as having that that moment of, ah, you know, I've discovered uh, Jesus Christ. I mean, I knew the teachings. I valued the teachings. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the most uh, influential piece of writing ever created, ever written down, ever taught. Um, but was there a moment of epiphany where all of a sudden, you know, my heart opened up and um, I accepted uh, Christ into my life? No, that's and, and for a lot of diehard Christians, that is not truly becoming um, aware or awakened to uh, God in their life. But for me, it was. Um, realizing that, you know, that there is such a debate in science and there's so much information that is actively ignored in science that reveals much wider reality. 
um, that I realized at that moment that, you know, there's more evidence for a creator than there is against it. Mm. Uh, and there are times in, you know, in your life where you don't, you can't, stuff happens and you go, yeah, if everything was just random chaos, that would never occur. Mm-hmm. So that was also that and individual experiences mm-hmm. also, uh, made me made me realize the error of my ways. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I love the journey that you're on, and and you know that's what this show is all about: living an informed life of exactly. staying open to ideas and receptive. Um, it's okay to change what you. think think the world's all about your perception of things the world's going to need more cheerleaders for change a change of perspective because you know a lot of people are having their belief systems in so many aspects challenged and i think the hard part is that cognitive dissonance it's like yes they can't accept you know that means that i was wrong all this time well that's okay that's life that's the journey of life (laughs) Yeah, the journey of life that is so true yeah that is so very true yeah but so. uh to to get into your second question about the um the role of what happens to us during development it's very similar to to what happens uh as you as you traverse different uh different ideas uh different yeah. pathways uh yeah so the brain is a very complicated organ to get into it, exactly yeah the brain is complicated but it's it, it's so important. And I don't think we think about it enough and talk about it enough. Um, and and everything we do impacts the brain. We often will talk about, oh, you have to eat healthy for your heart, you know, maintain a healthy weight, um, you know, different things for your immune system. But absolutely everything that you do with the intention of it impacting the rest of your body also impacts the brain. Um, and in fact, um, well, let's go back to this in a second because I, I had a thought and I want to remember where were you in your career when it was discovered that the lymphatic system is directly connected to the brain? It was about 2015. There was this big study and they yeah. found an actual physical connection. And before that, they didn't realize that. And it was revolutionary. Yeah. You know, it meant so much more got into the brain than we had ever thought. Do you recall where you were? I remember having a discussion before 2015 in which people were already talking about the fact that there were, there were suggestions, there was early evidence for it. So around 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. um, that there was already discussions about it. And in the neuroanatomy community, um, uh, and, and the, which basically requires a lot of histological analysis, this was big, big conversation because it was one of the biggest discoveries that had been, you know, overlooked for, you know, well over a century now. Mm-hmm. And the connection, and there was a lot of um, inference about it, that the role of um, the nervous system in regulating the immune system, the interplay between immune function and, and nervous system function, there was a lot of evidence for it, um, relating how, you know, your, your perception, your personality, your stress levels influence how your immune system responded. And in some cases, how you could actually reverse certain conditions. So some like, in some cases, there, there was even um, reference of being able to control some forms of uh, lupus symptoms, just by having different associations, like, for example, uh, 
um, they did a couple of studies in which they did a uh, um, an association with a smell and try and teach people to alter some of their their symptomology for lupus that was quite successful and you can't do that because if you don't have a connection between your your nervous system and your brain uh, or your central nervous system and the, the immune system you know there is no mechanism for doing that so yeah yeah it was it was a huge discovery at the time yeah you know and and the way everything is connected it sort of explains on some level the power of prayer in some at, at some level yes yeah you know when you put the energy of the brain to work it can um direct that energy to the body that self-focus and um and absolutely and perhaps pull in some of the energy out there since we're all connected <laughs> and all of that consciousness or whatever it is is all connected it's to me the more i learn about the more humans discover some little bit about how creation works mm -hmm. the more brilliant the design becomes and the more cautious i become about interfering with it at all we have no idea what we're dabbling with we think we know we know like a fraction of this and then somebody comes up with a product and markets it and they have no idea the ripple effect and it it's not in their financial best interest to um examine the ripple effect of what they're doing um yeah so okay that's exactly it Very yeah true. so yeah so back to i found this diagram at the um let me make it just a little bit bigger if i could at the oh that didn't get bigger that got smaller let me see where does it says at the bottom here this is the georgia department of human services so i liked the way it very cleanly and easily described here brain development timeline from birth to death um and i'll read it across a little bit we've got the formation of brain cells begins in the womb begins in the womb and i just find that like so such a powerful statement it begins in the womb we aren't born with our brains no and not even all the brain cells are formed. And then no. we've got birth. Mm -hmm. Then the brain begins a rapid period of growth. Pruning begins and myelination continues. Yep. Brain development processes continue, especially in the frontal lobe, but this is in adolescence. And then in adulthood, brain development begins to slow down, but it doesn't say it stops. So this I found so like cool. So I would love for you to start, please, Javier, please start with formation of brain cells begins in the womb and tell us what you know about that. So um, the uh, sperm and egg combine, and then there is rapid cell division. And in that period of rapid cell division, there's specialization. So as you get more and more cells, you go from two, you know, one cell, two cells, four cells, uh, eight cells, 1632, and you go from... Um, a more, you know, you go from a blastocyst to a morula to a, a fetus. Uh, there's all this specialization that keeps on going. Um, and uh, the, cent the, the central nervous system, if I remember correctly, and this is now digging back the, uh, uh, the layers of, uh, of years, is that the uh, central nervous system is actually a um, um, specialized form of um, uh, epidermis, or like it, it's derived from the same group of cells that... Um, 
develop the the skin. Uh, and then they actually, you know, there's this whole process of invagination, extrusion as uh, different parts of the anatomy take shape and different mm -hmm. organ systems are generated and cells begin to specialize. So you start from a very generalized cell type to specialized cell layers that cell layers then in, um, uh, turn into themselves. They start, you know, basically pinching off portions of it and they subspecialize even more. The central nervous system is the same way. So you have, um, you know, the, the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. The central nervous system uh, generates uh, many, many cells. Like you're born with more brain cells than you will ever need. And you have way more brain cells uh, at the time of your birth than you will have at the age of two. As a matter of fact, there's a decline in the number of cells, of neuron cells. So there's a rapid process. Basically, you generate all these neurons all these astrocytes in the in the brain, all the support network, the vasculature, that is the blood supply, is also a very critical part of uh, delivering uh, or making sure that you have proper brain development. So at the time of your birth, you know, uh, you're, you're born uh, most, you know, most of the time you're, you're born, you can't see that well. It's very blurry. Um, but you also have a, one of the most active periods where the neurons are growing their... Um, their dendrites, their axons, making connections or trying to make connections with other parts of the brain. By that point, you know, you have uh, different, different layers to the brain. Um, the, you know, the, the, um, the midbrain, uh, the thalamic region, and then the, uh, um, the cere uh, cerebrum. And then, of course, the cerebellum, which is this another function, another part of the brain that are specialized. You need to have all the connections in place. So from the brain, from the spinal cord up into the brain uh, and the brain stem and then into the thalamus, then it spreads out to both hemispheres of the brain. So we have two hemispheres, left and right, and each part has different specializations for vision, for um, uh, process, auditory processing, speech processing, muscle control, uh, vision, uh, balance, all those have to become integrated as you grow. And so what happens is that neurons that have successful connections with other neurons and there's feedback, they maintain those connections. They actually grow stronger. Neurons that don't, you can actually, you start losing them. They start dying off and pruning back. So that pruning <laughs> process happens. Um, am, am I understanding the terminology correctly that some children who become diagnosed, say, with autism, that something is failing in the pruning process and this um, it can, yes. can be the cause of some behavior. So that pruning process is necessary yes. um, for proper brain function. Correct. Yeah. And then there's the role of inflammation too. Inflammatory responses in the brain can actually uh, stunt, delay, or even kill off certain portions of the brain. So there's... Okay. Different, several different approaches. Now, what's interesting is that uh, in the literature for autism, you can have incredible recovery if you can identify and remove what is causing it. Usually uh, heavy metals like aluminum, mercury, um, copper, things like that, that are over, that are, that are, that are introduced into the central nervous system and accumulate there. Uh, metals, for some reason, do really like to get into fatty tissue like mm -hmm. the brain. And the brain is a, an exceptionally fatty tissue. It, it, it's a lot of lipid in there. Um, but what's interesting is that there's a very thin layer of our brain 
the cortex mm-hmm. again we're talking uh that has the majority of our neurons or the neuron bodies there's a very thin layer at the surface of the, of uh, of our brain that then um has projections into the brain so uh-huh. the of the neurons are on the exterior and then you have other specialized areas like the amygdala and the hippocampus uh, that have their own little, uh, not little, vast array of, of neurons in the interior of the brain as well. You said so many amazing things here. I think each one could have their own hour dedicated to it. But it, in in utero and yes. in the be- first couple of months or years of life, as you named a couple of things that are absolutely critical to avoid heavy metals, certain toxins and inflammation. Right. And, you know, we talk a lot on this show about the dangers of, um, of vaccines in early childhood and they introduce heavy metals such as aluminum that does cross the placental barrier, does get to that developing fetus's brain. Yes. Um, and you know, and, now a pregnant woman is there's four vaccines that are now that are pushed on her they not only have ingredients that do cross that placental barrier they all cause inflammation yes yes and the baby gets another one on the day of birth if they're following the schedule and they get a series of them at two months four months six months yes now when i was a kid i'm a bit older than you javier when i was a kid they did not give baby pregnant women or infants shots. They waited. Um, and you know, even before my time, it's like a doctor wouldn't even think of giving, um, a vaccine to a child under the age of three because they understood that this little baby's immune system, the, the brain was still developing, but all of these things are happening. And, and that inflammation in particular, it's encouraging that you said, if if these things can be addressed, if you can clean them out of the brain, yeah. you know, you've got this tremendous capacity to heal, if you can reduce that inflammation. But you know what, that can't happen if you are being gaslit by your doctor and being told that what your child is experiencing has nothing to do with heavy metals or inflammation or anything that they just experienced in the doctor's office. And so proper treatment is not administered. Correct. Yeah. And again, uh, gaslighting it, it, um, uh, the education that a doctor receives and the information that a doctor um, consumes uh, is really um, it's part propaganda, part marketing, uh, but also uh, part training as well. So most doctors spend a lot of time learning things uh, and then they subspecialize. Um, and again, unless you have a doctor that is incredibly uh, curious about what's going on, the information they receive is, is uh, curated in such a way that it um, funnels them in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea, for example, that you could, um, like you could recover from a stroke or a neurological injury uh, 30 years ago was laughed at. It's just that's not possible. Neurons don't grow back. Well, they do. As a matter of fact, there was one that was one of the biggest debates in the neurosciences that can can you actually generate neurons as an adult? And the answer is absolutely you can. 
Not that's so exciting. It. And that, that, that happened well, within, within your young career, Javier, no, isn't it? That's... It was, it was a huge discovery. I still remember in the early two thousands, this was a, <laughs> this was a researcher studying birdsong of all mm -hmm. places. He was, a. Uh, um, he was studying, yeah, he, he, he specialized in the, uh, uh, the neurology of birdsong. And he realized that adult birds grow new neurons um, every, every season, every mating season. So they have a cycle in which, you know, new neurons grow in, they prune back. But the next season, new neurons grow in and they prune back. And that sort of set the um, research uh, arms race uh, in the neurosciences. Uh, in the 90s, uh, yeah, late 90s, early two, 2000s, in which um, all of a sudden people said, well, do mammals have that capability? It took a while. Um, and it did show clear evidence that, yeah, neurons, mammals generate neurons in, into the adulthood. And there was some early, and there was, now it's, I think, fairly well established that even in your 60s, 70s, 80s, you're still generating uh, uh, stem cells that turn into neurons in the brain. Right. That is, that's so exciting. So properly supported, you know, we could, all of us maintain proper health. It's exciting. The other thing you mentioned before we go to the older stage of development, that our brains are a lot of fat in our brains. Yeah. Um, and probably one of the most dangerous things that ever happened was that big old um, fat is bad fad that happened yeah. where people were drastically reducing fat. Um, tragically, we still have incentivized prescriptions of statin drugs that bring Correct. cholesterol down, which is necessary for brain function. And the side effects of these, these drugs, it, it impacts your brain, it, loss of memory, all of this stuff. Um, of course, it's not all fat. We need good fat. So talk to us a little bit about um, healthy fat and the sort of fat that your brain needs right. at different stages of development. So usually, uh, you know, um, mother's milk is very high in fat, has a great deal of cholesterol, has also a lot of omega-3 fatty acids um, that uh, are necessary for uh, a growing child. So um, that that provides the vast majority, well, provides all your, your nutritional support uh, very early in your life. Uh, having access to a wide variety of fats is critical, especially omega-3 during development. You want to, you want to consume that. Um, and there, there is, well, I'm trying to think. Um, cheeses have contain a wide variety of fats. Everyone Cholesterol has been so vilified as a um, um, as a dietary support. Cholesterol is very important. It makes up a large part of the cell membrane uh, mm -hmm. in most cells, and it also is the building block for fatty acids um, in in our brain and in every cell membrane. So, um, reduction of fats or the substitution of different fats, you know, um, trans fats. Um, Seed oils are bad. Seed oils yeah. are bad. You want something that uh, will allow for, for, uh, for the proper construction of cell membranes. And another thing is that fatty acids and cholesterols are the building blocks for um, molecular signaling inside of cells. So, so if you if you accumulate, say, omega six fatty acids, that'll alter the internal communication of your cells and it'll bias them to or not provide sufficient information or give the wrong information. Omega-3s uh, are the, bu the building blocks that allow for uh, efficient 
uh, and correct communication inside of cells uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. So uh, what most people don't realize is that the brain is also a very fragile organ because there is there are no bones in the brain. Uh, you're basically uh, this little, the, the brain is this little, well, not little, it's fairly big. It's basically, uh, it's covered with a leathery, a protective uh, layer. So if you go past the skull, you have a, a protective uh, layer. It's, it's, it's tough to cut. Don't ask. Don't. <laughs> uh, and then you have the... Uh, I look at you in a whole different way now, Javier, knowing that you... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, my, nickname, my nickname was Igor. Okay. Oh no. Yeah. Um, so you have, you have these different layers of the brain, but the brain itself is a very fragile organ, mm. incredibly fragile. Uh, so in terms of brain health, but for, from, from injury, the, the, the brain is encased in floats in liquid mm -hmm. really is there. There, there are some connecting points that sort of protect and buffer the, the brain from, from moving around too much, but it is an exquisitely sensitive organ. And um, um, for uh, all the neurosurgeons out there, I have an incredible amount of respect because the delicacy with which you have to operate and the margin of error that you have is very low. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. and again, <laughs> I mean, if, if you've never seen um, a fresh brain, it it's it, it'll blow your mind at how fragile it looks and wow. fragile feels in your hands wow it really is is like nothing a heart you can grab a heart and you can feel how how strong that that, that musculature is and how and how um robust it is a brain mm -hmm. is none of those things none interesting i guess that's why it's encased in a skull and and has um, a leathery yeah. cover. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 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 And why we really must protect it. So, everybody look up the right fats to eat. You know, we're yes. talking about your coconut oil or, or organic, um, your palm oh, yeah. oils, uh, good old fashioned lard from uh, pasture raised um, animals, and your, your, all those healthy fats, your good healthy nuts and such. Those are um, brain fuel. Absolutely. You know? And right there. So important. Okay. So how are we doing? I want, if you had anything else you wanted to bring on Javier, that make sure we leave time that we cover if there's sure. some specific uh, news. So you've kind of got us up to pruning and people have heard the term demyelination. And yeah. I see on here in early child, we have something called myelination. Can you explain what that is? So the myelin is a protective cover. I mean, um, the, like you have uh, the plastic cover on wires, mm -hmm. it's very similar. It provides, um, it promotes efficient electrical firing. It promotes efficient signaling. Myelin is a, a fatty sheath that uh, wraps around the projection, uh, the neurites, the the axons of of um, of neurons, uh, both in the central nervous system and in the uh, in the peripheral service system, there's um, myelin sheath and Schwann cells that um, provide this cover. And it's basically a fatty layer with nodes in between. So it's like little bulges um, that promote efficient information or efficient firing of the neuron. Wow. So, yeah. So in early child, I mean, when you're born, you don't have this. You do. You do, okay. but it's incomplete. You need you wow. need to grow it over time. So, for example, 
the last part or one of the uh, later parts that develops and has a, a full myelin sheath is the uh, prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And the prefrontal cortex has a very specialized function called executive uh, decision-making. Mm. That's huge. I feel like the entire planet suffers from yeah. prefrontal cortex depletion or dysfunction or something. I know right. I do. And so right. that executive function is one of the reasons that, or at least one of the discoveries made is that why uh, children in early age and teenagers have poor ability to make good judgments and think about the future is that uh, this part is very important in being able to uh, think about the future, think about consequences, mm-hmm. and integrate them into a uh, less reactive and more thought thought uh, uh, thought thought directed process. Yeah, in your personality. So myelin myelination is incredibly important. And if you don't have uh, you know sufficient fats or good fats, that also can impede proper myelin, myelina, myelination. Uh, as you grow as well. And you think about the poor diet of a lot of teens um, and the poor decision-making going on there. And, you know, we know that the criminal law, there's some fantastic literature out there that takes into the account when adolescents commit a crime Yes, that, you know, they are not as well-equipped as they should be. That's why there's different sentencing for youngsters who commit certain crimes. But it also goes to show how important it is that parental rights are preserved yes. because your kid might look like a grown up, but they're not, they're not ready to make these decisions yet. And they need that guidance um, of an adult to, um, to help them. So it just, this is further proof that we, and the brain is still very vulnerable um, oh, yeah. to outside very, very influences. Vulnerable. Uh, to harm at this Absolutely. stage. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I predict that if we actually looked at the population of vaccinated versus unvaccinated uh, children, mm-hmm. they'll probably mature. My guess is that they'll mature faster mm-hmm. than, un, than vaccinated children in their uh, pruning and myelination process as they get older. They'll mature faster in that they're able to take on more responsibility and act uh, as if, you know, their, their prefrontal cortex is more fully developed because there is an interaction between the immune system and uh, development of the nervous system, even at that age. So that's just a hunch. I don't know if it's been shown. Uh, mm. that's, again, that I think I'm going to look into that next. Yeah, it, it makes sense that if the body and brain are, are spending Uh, significant energy just trying to detoxify and to reduce inflammation from these environmental exposures, that it's going to delay growth and development. Correct. Um, And hopefully you get rid of the the toxins, inflammation at a young enough age. I know the younger you are, the more potential for healing, but I don't give up potential for healing at any age. And some of the great work that you have um, talked about in the past, like with Dr. Ted Fogarty, with the hyperbaric oxygen and, and um, glutathione and, and all of that, it just shows that life is amazing. And and healing wants to happen. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so then, so, you know, we, we get that that's continuing into early adulthood and then brain development begins to slow in, in yes. adulthood, but it's encouraging to me to think that it doesn't completely um, stop. It doesn't stop. No. And again, there's also um, <clears throat> uh, 
something called neuroplasticity. So we're constantly making new connections, pruning back others, um, establishing new patterns and new behaviors. Uh, and in some cases, even with people that have a stroke, uh, you you have to develop or at least grow new new contacts, rewire your brain. So mm -hmm. that is considered also part of development in that um, you're, you're rewiring, the brain is rewiring itself constantly. So you have that ability to, to do that. Now there's been a story or there was a story. I remember of a two-year-old girl that drowned and, yes. uh, had been underwater for, you know, well beyond the, the scope or the ability of the, the brain basically shut down and she was kept on life support mm -hmm. and they declared her brain dead, but the family, um, and I think it was Paul Harch that, uh, mm -hmm. That, that the treatment on this two-year-old girl, um, you know, they they started doing hyperbaric oxygen therapy, uh, started doing some, uh, nutritional support, and that two-year-old girl is now normal, healthy, and an adult, uh, grown a grown adult uh, uh, woman, I think mother and wife, no neurological injury, or at wow. least nothing that impeded her. Um, mm -hmm. So the regenerative power of uh, young kids is amazing and the regenerative power of uh of adults is amazing uh doesn't appear as great as, as children's yeah but it is still significant if you can support it appropriately that's that's really exciting so um in the remaining time um you know what do you see on the horizon what excites you the most about where brain research is going uh, well what worries me the most is the um this pursuit of uh, trying to integrate the central nervous system with machinery. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, that has been an agenda that's been going on for many, many years uh, in that you want to be able to say, for example, if you want to access a library of information, the idea is, well, you implant a chip in your head and all of a sudden, presto, you got that, that information. From the perspective of, you know, you know, just basic neuroscience, knowledge is not just bits of information, mm -hmm. you know, things that you read, things that you have to process, connections you have to make between the information and your past experience, creativity, you know, you have to get creative to make certain leaps and like, oh, I didn't know that was connected in this and that, in this and that way. Um, but we just don't know what that's going to do to the brain. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest concern of them all. Um, so far, uh, a lot of the work in trying to introduce uh, electrical connections, um, you know, they're fraught with so many problems that uh, anyone that claims that they've developed a way to connect uh, an electronic connection between the brain and uh, uh, an electronic system, I, I, I have a great deal of doubt and a great deal of concern uh, over that. Now, in terms of what I see uh, coming up as, uh, you know, being able to heal the brain, um, just supporting normal function and understanding what is blocking good, healthy function is probably going to mm -hmm. be the most significant um, um, development uh, for healthy aging and, and understanding the neurobiology of the, of the nervous system. Um, that we'll make probably in the next 20 or 30 years. Like for example, mm -hmm. the whole, the whole omega-3 uh, fatty acid supplementation was a, a major game changer. 
uh, the the use of hyperbaric oxygen uh, in trying to heal certain um, injuries in the brain, the mm -hmm. idea that you can actually remove heavy metals even from from the central nervous system, that's you know that's that was done in the 1940s, um, you know to remove heavy metals from the body, uh, and then was quietly hushed hushed uh, because chelation therapy was considered fringe, but it was actually mm -hmm. done routinely. Uh, for decades until it was decided that, well, we don't, we don't want to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, just trying to go back and revisit some of the ideas um, that have been ignored, I think is going to be another major uh, uh, revelation. And then finally, um, trying to integrate something that has been known for thousands and thousands of years. Like for example, uh, acupuncture is one of those um, traditions and techniques <clears throat> to die. Mm -hmm. Reason it refuses to die because it's effective, mm -hmm. right? Everyone thinks that well, acupuncture is nothing more than stimulating nerve endings. Mm -hmm. Well, that is uh, not true. That is something that has uh, been shown repeatedly, and this is something that a group of Caltech physicists uh, showed quite uh, unequivocally that you know it's not just in that central nervous system there's something else that we need to integrate and that is the human body field the mm. field that surrounds each and every person uh, and that's that's less of a um, less of a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for controversial topic to discuss now than it was 20 years ago we, we do have that uh, for example in in the studies that they did with acupuncture, uh, they looked at the speed of transmission of information uh, using very advanced uh, acoustic technology to measure uh, the changes in uh, what they called the the young the Young's modulus of of the of um, the some of the points on the body, and the Young's modulus basically is a um, um, an equation that you use to say how firm is tissue. Or how firm is a material? How much can it bend? And the Young's modulus is something that just doesn't change. A material has a Young's modulus. It doesn't change. Well, lo and behold, when you apply certain acupuncture points, you see changes along the meridians of the acupuncture points. Hmm. That changes the Young's modulus, which shouldn't happen. But also the transmission of information, speed of information. Um, they found that um, the acupuncture points travel faster the transmission rate of nerve impulses. Wow, very cool. So again, this is about integrating more of what we, you know, acupuncture is more than 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. Study of the central nervous system in the West is roughly about 100, 150 years old. Integrating mm -hmm. all this is going to be the major, next major revolution um, in, in understanding uh, how we, how we work in essence. You make me think of the name of James Lines Weiler's organization, IPAC, the Institute for Peer and Applied Knowledge. Absolutely. And, you know, it, I feel like if we were to explore fully what we already know and methodologies that have been out there for health and really embrace them and make sure everybody had access to them, chiropractic care, acupuncture, healthy diet, um, hyperbaric, all of these things, health could so easily be achieved. Yeah. The vast majority of individuals, but the entire 
medical industry that has been built up around so many other things, uh, how would they support themselves? And, um, you know, so we, we have to begin to, though, um, fund health and stop funding um, Ill, things that do not actually support health, right. that just support that industry. Um, so then, that, you know, go ahead. So th- then there's just one more. Uh, one more comment I need to make. Um, There was a major shift in the 1940s and 50s uh, all across the globe. If you start looking back at uh, the two major uh, scientific journals, Science and Nature, Mm -hmm. uh, if you go back to the 1860s, 1870s, some of the things that were published in those journals, your, your jaw would drop in terms of what were some of the research topics uh, that were considered acceptable. And all of a sudden you see science and nature becoming very, very hyper-focused on areas that are incredibly technical and don't, I mean, the it went from looking at, at, at the universe like this mm-hmm. to coming down to this. So what, what was acceptable very early on, you had, you had some wild ideas uh, that didn't bear fruit, some wild mm-hmm. ideas that did bear fruit, but were, were, ignored and then just a a, basically a a consolidation of of thought so that's that's i think what's exciting about ipac ipac definitely will will adhere to the scientific method to good practices and peer review Mm -hmm. but it's going to be a lot broader and it's going to take concepts and ideas that have been too long ignored Mm -hmm. uh, to be actually taken seriously and rigorously analyzed with the scientific method yeah very good um, we're getting close to the end of the hour here. We'll probably be hearing music here in a second. Javier, I can't tell you how wonderful this hour has been. Oh, um, all that you have brought um, and that you continue to bring to this show, I'm glad that you had this hour. Let's make sure we do this again. On sure. you know, you can pick topics about your expertise here. Bring it in depth to listeners like this. I, we all have so much to learn from you. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) Bernadette, I learned so much from you um, and getting into this field as well. So uh, thank you. you. And I mean, it's this is the important work is making sure that people get involved. Um, Science is not supposed to be for uh, academics and the high priests of of knowledge. It it really is one of the greatest level leveling fields uh, ever developed um, uh, for for humanity. Amen to that. All righty. Well, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to the Health Hour on Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW and CHD TV. When we come back, we will be the Liberty Hour, not on CHD TV. It's going to be Washington State focused. So hop on over to Twitter or Facebook or Rumble and catch us there. We'll see you on the flip side. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, Inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. 
we need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at HealthyImmunityNow.org. That's HealthyImmunityNow.org. Children's Health Defense is a nonprofit organization with a mission to end childhood health epidemics by working aggressively to eliminate harmful exposures, hold those responsible, accountable, and establish safeguards to prevent future harm. The Washington chapter of Children's Health Defense is stepping up at the state and local levels, but we can't do this without you. Join us at wa.childrenshealthdefense.org. Let's restore and defend children's health and their futures in Washington State. The information contained in this episode is for informational purposes only. No material is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 